Welcome to Deal of the Week, Bloomberg's podcast on the world of mergers and acquisitions. I'm Ed Hammond, your host, and I'm joined again by Jason Kelly, our bureau chief here in New York. Uh, Jason, today we are focusing on dry powder, which is sort of the topic de jour. There is a lot being written at the moment about the private equity industry and how much they have. I think this figure that you um, spoke very eloquently about yesterday is $1.7 trillion of dry powder, which is really just another term for unspent money that the private equity industry is sitting on. There's a huge report by Bain. In fact, it's so big, I've got it in front of me, I couldn't even staple it together. Um, And we are also going to be joined by our private equity reporter, Melissa Mittelman, who is joining from Berlin, where she is at the Super Return Conference, which is the sort of, what what would you call that, the private equity jamboree? It is. It's a jamboree. It's like buyout palooza. So we're going to get, she's our kind of, she's our woman on the ground. She's going to be giving us color and thoughts from what people are talking about at this conference. And hopefully they're talking a lot about dry powder and how frustrating it is to have all of this money. And we should note that part of the reason this is so uh, front of mind for everybody is we had, speaking of paloozas, we had Buffett. Uh, coming out over the weekend griping. and griping and talking about how he and his team need to get to work because they have so much dry powder themselves. So it's 116 the billion. Amazing. Dry powder. Although some of that we should note, he's saying, is really just because of tax changes. So he now has a much bigger position than he had. But he's all, interestingly, Buffett, and we'll, we'll come back to this, but he is complaining uh, vociferously about the conditions in the market and how difficult it is for him to be a buyer. So we have to assume that the private equity industry is suffering from similar things because they, like Buffett, probably see themselves as disciplined, not wanting to overpay. They also don't have the synergies that you would see with strategics, which is, again, something Buffett suffers from. I also always love talking about Buffett and private equity because they have this very ongoing, long-running kind of feud cultural, of sorts. Cultural differences. And Buffett has talked smack about private equity in the past, but then he teamed up with 3G down repeatedly, in Brazil. Repeatedly, right? Exactly. So, And they are, uh, I think it's fair to say, among the more rapacious private equity firms out there. Certainly aggressive. Aggressive. There you go. So, so Melissa, I'm going to bring you in at this point. If, we, if Magnus is going to make the magic happen and press a button that will get Melissa connected. Melissa, welcome from Berlin. It's very nice to have you back on the show. What is the mood? Thank you. Thanks for having me. Uh, it's it's cold here. It's about 10 degrees. Um, people are bundled up, but things are centralized around the intercontinental where super return is happening. And there's a lot of conversation going on. Um, you know, when it comes to dry powder, the thing about it is that it's really only a bad thing if you can't find good deals to spend it on. And we're seeing quite a bit of optimism among investors today about opportunities they're seeing in the market. This is interesting. I want to pick up on this because this report, this Bain report, which is, as I said, is huge, is very optimistic in its tone. It constantly says things you know, may look bad, but actually things are great, which sounds a lot like how investment bankers speak. Um, but Jason, one thing that really stuck out for me was that there is this huge amount of dry powder, as we mentioned, but the share of private equity deals in the overall M&A market in 2017 fell for the fourth year in a row. So are the deals out there for these guys? I think the deals are out there. I I do get the sense, and it'll be interesting to hear what Melissa's hearing from, from the guys on the ground there, but, you know, things are expensive. And I think they are, they feel a lot of pressure to do deals. And yet at the same time, they know from experience that if they buy at too high of a price, it is really hard to 
deliver the sorts of returns that their investors are expecting. And I think there's a huge amount of competition given the cash in the balance sheets, not just Warren Buffett, but almost every company out there, especially in this post-tax reform world. They're sensing a lot of competition from strategic. So I, th- I think there's there's pressure on on both sides from these guys. I mean, Melissa, what what's your sense of, of that from, from the people you're talking to there? I would agree with you. I think there's definitely a lot of pressure. I think that optimism is certainly coming through. Prakash Malwani from Blackstone, the, the private equity CIO, spoke today and he said valuations to some extent might be justified given what we're seeing with corporate tax reform given what we're seeing with kind of the the tech integration, making assets more efficient. And so that certainly kind of came through as a strong voice to say maybe we should be, you know, a little bit more comfortable with the, the prices we're paying than, than what's accepted. Johannes Huth, who heads KKR's Europe business, thinks that this economy has room to run. And so, again, there's this, this, there's this general sense that things might be okay, but at the same time people are saying, you know, we're getting a bit more creative with where we are putting our money as a way to get around those valuations. Yeah, I also think what's tough when you when you come to to talk about those big guys especially is you know, there's this aggregate amount of money, but when you're talking about KKR and Blackstone, and Melissa knows this better than anyone, like they they have big funds that they have to invest too. And so part of the reason it's hard to put money to work, I would think, is that they need to find places to put relatively large slugs to in. To move the needle. Yeah. Yeah, and this is, they actually break this out in the report. And I, you know, I follow private equity sort of from an M&A perspective, but I, not necessarily from the fundraising perspective. So I, I found this incredible. I had no idea that these funds had gotten this big. So Apollo, $24.7 billion, uh, was their latest fund. Uh, CVC has an $18 billion fund. KKR has this nine point three. So these are huge numbers. And where do you like where do you go where did where do they buy to actually get any sort of traction with with these funds yeah i would pose that question to melissa because i i feel like the you know the obvious place for a, a big style deal is the public the public markets and yet the valuations are high so i mean are there big private to privates that are, that are happening Melissa, what, what's going on? Yeah, I mean, I think there are a couple levers that they're trying to pull. Uh, you know, we hear a lot of instead of buying a company, let's create one. So add-ons are a huge kind of source of deal flow. I think that that came across in the, the Bain & Co. report as well. Uh, we're seeing people say, you know, go after businesses with huge secular tailwinds, things like healthcare or education or things that might have an uplift from the, the trend of digitization or things like that. People said go outside of OECD countries. Um, you know, some players like Blackstone and Brookfield today said they want to go big and they're willing to to kind of pay up on these these large, massive deals to get the really good assets, to get the really good talent, rather than do a bunch of smaller deals that you know might not make sense for them long term. And there's another stat in here in the report that multiples for around half the companies that required. Uh, and I'm assuming this is in 2017, were priced uh, in excess of 11 times earnings, which, I mean, can private equity make that sort of math work or is that just price them out? We're seeing this increased focus on operational improvement. And again, that's coming up in session after session here in Berlin, where it's not necessarily just about kind of multiple expansion, not necessarily about the leverage component or the, the financial engineering. It's really getting in your operators on the ground at the company and say, how can we affect change to grow this business truly, you know, from within, whether that's let's expand internationally, let's take a look at our 
kind of efficiency across a number of different components of the business. But private equity firms are really starting to be to emphasize their operating expertise um, as a differentiator to get kind of that return on investment. Jason, I want to sort of pick this up with you. Like <laughs> private equity, I think of them as financial engineers. That's what they do. So if we move into the environment where financial engineering is no longer something that's really going to make the buck and they have to become, can they do that? Can they be operators? Or is that just a, a completely different skill set? This is the great existential question of private equity, I think. I mean, and, and really has been for at least the last 10 years and and certainly in the, the post-crisis, post-Great uh, Recession period, to me, the, the biggest question that comes from that is, A, can they do it, to your point, and B, how does that ultimately impact returns? Now, the private equity guys would say, and I think Melissa would echo this, that this is how they make real meaningful returns. This is how they create good, sustainable companies. One of the challenges, though, is that to put that sort of operational expertise to work in a company, to have it it, you know, at the ready or in-house, as some of them do, is expensive. And so when you get to the the latter end of this equation, which is the exit and and ultimately the return, you may you may be crimping your own margin there by how much you have to invest literally and figuratively in order to to really make it make a company move. So this, you know, financial engineering is the easier way to make it. Right. Operational improvement, you know, requires a lot more bodies and and more expensive bodies, and so you just you don't know ultimately um, how that's going to play out. And a different kind of talent pool. Yes, absolutely. Melissa, is this something that you, that you see in the private equity funds that you talk to that they're actually actively going out and hiring people to do? you know, more operational stuff and less of the financial engineering? Because to me, they do seem like very disparate concepts. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think this has been happening over the past couple of years as the, you know, prices have risen, as the use of leverage overall has declined to some extent. I think they have been building out these teams. They have been hiring operators. And I think we're seeing that across all the large firms and a number of different kind of manifestations, whether that's in traditional buyout um, or, you know, we're seeing some of that in infrastructure and a few other areas. But yeah, I mean, it's definitely a different skill set. And I think we're going to see how it plays out in this next kind of exit cycle in terms of the returns that these operators have been able to generate just from pure operating expertise. The good news about that sort of model is that if you go to an ex-CEO or a current CEO and say, here's the opportunity, you can leverage, pun intended, a lot of your expertise, go in and run this company. It can be unbelievably lucrative for them. Um, you know, when you look at, I think it's happened to Carlisle, it's happened to KKR, CDNR, which is one of the longest standing uh, private equity firms based here in New York, is famous for that. They have raided GE and Procter & Gamble. Um, you know, Jack Welch went to work there after he left General Electric. You know they have they have made pretty successful people fabulously wealthy because the business model of private equity is to really reward the executives who are able to manifest that sort of change. They're they're not only hiring in house, but they're creating advisory committees. So a number of firms have former executives uh, uniquely assigned to them, or uniquely or proprietarily working with them as an advisor. So that they bring them in when they when they're looking at deals and say, how do we actually kind of pull those operational levers? Or from your perspective, as a former CEO of this type of a business, what would you do to make this 
Yeah, and what they'll literally do is, you know, they'll, they'll keep them, they'll keep them on the payroll somehow. You know, pay them a couple hundred thousand dollars, and then with with the upside being, if you find a deal, you either go on the board, you run it, um, and then and then the payout can be tremendous over you know three to five years. It's not another. It's not adding another twenty years to your career. It's you know really just leveraging your expertise and your network. Yeah, you're on a retainer and then you may work hard for a few years, but you know, your reward will be great from the private equity firm. It's good work if you can get it. (laughs) So so I I think one thing that I've definitely seen play out and again this is more from an MA perspective, but is is very much related to private equity, is the the funds that have been successful, the funds that have actually been able to do big deals and do them well, are much more specialized. They're not necessarily these sort of multi-strap funds. They're people like JAB. Obviously, they are sort of very long food and consumer products. We've seen them do a ton of really big deals. Uh, most recently, they were obviously the kind of the, the driver behind this Dr. Pepper Snapple. Uh, Keurig deal, which happened just a couple of weeks ago, but they've also done Panera, which was a huge take private, uh, and and a bunch of other things. And they really are operators. And then if you look um, in the restaurant space, someone like Rourke, who only does restaurants, and they did the Buffalo Wild Wings deals. So it feels like those kind of firms that sort of, I'm not even sure you would call them niche players, but they're very focused in one area, and they are operators. They're not financial engineers. They seem to be prospering kind of at the expense of these more traditional, what I think of as like financial engineering private equity firms. I think that's right. But part of it comes down to what sort of returns are they guaranteeing? What sort of investors are they bringing in? I, I think, you know, some of the names that Melissa was talking about earlier, the, the KKRs, Blackstones and Apollos of the world, you know, their play to their big investors is give us huge amounts of money and we will give you a much better than much better return than you can get elsewhere so you can you know you can give a firm like that a couple hundred you know several hundred million dollars or more and get a you know 12 to 15% return i think if you are a you know hardcore monoline private equity firm you need to deliver an irr and a return on capital uh, that is that is much higher than that and and they can if they do have if they do it right and they have the specialty you're talking about and i think it's also about kind of the diversified exposure when you go to the players that you know, Jason just mentioned, you are going into kind of, in many cases, a large diversified fund, whereas if you go to a kind of niche strategy, you're getting that much more targeted exposure. And so I think I think it's kind of an equation that these LPs, these investors are, are having to make in terms of what types of exposures they want in their portfolio. So the killer question, obviously, what happens to this money if they don't deploy it? I mean, if they don't deploy it, they they literally never draw it down, and they have to give it back. It, that is a highly unlikely scenario, don't you think, Melissa? If there's one the, the the one thing that these guys like to do even less than lose money is give, give money back. back. <laughs> but th- does that mean we move toward a sort of period of indiscipline or less discipline if they are under this time pressure to sort of deploy it or give it back? I think that's certainly possible. I mean, I think if you see some volatility that, like we've seen. Early on, you could see some more competitive situations. I think you could see multiples driven up. I mean, it'll be interesting to to hear when you're back, Melissa, and and have heard all the different presentations. How worried people are about multiples sort of creeping up as all this money goes to work in a more uh, volatile area. Yeah, and I, and I think that in some ways, some people might say there already is a little bit of a lack of discipline. 
just in terms of what people are paying in terms of multiples is much higher. It's at, you know, in your records here. So we're, we are already seeing people pay up. Whether or not it's justified, I guess only time will tell. But I think that, you know, we're starting to see some leverage levels creep up toward six times. And I think um, whether or not we've already seen some kind of lack of discipline is, is a valid and important question. And I, I, I think it'll be interesting to see how this plays out. Well, it's a question that Buffett has um, attempted at least to answer very uh, uh, succinctly in his letter, which obviously came out last Saturday. Um, he says uh, that he thinks essentially there is this sort of mediocrity premium in the market. It's no longer just that people are overpaying for great businesses. It's that they're overpaying for not great businesses, which obviously speaks to a uh, you know, valuation picture that he thinks has sort of been allowed to run amok. He says the, the, the qualities that allow him to go out and buy big companies include XYZ and a sensible purchase price. He says that last requirement proved a barrier to virtually all deals we reviewed in 2017 as prices for decent but far from spectacular businesses hit all-time high. Indeed, price seemed almost irrelevant to an army of optimistic purchasers. That does not sound like a good market that to be in. That is bleak. It is pretty bleak. It is pretty bleak. And and, and he, he returns to a favorite topic of uh, bashing investment bankers. He says a lot of this is being driven by investment bankers smelling fees and applauding deals. He actually says specifically, don't ask the barber whether you need a haircut. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, again, you sort of weigh Buffett against the private equity guys. And, you know, and Buffett has famously said in the past that private equity companies don't love what they own enough. And, you know, he does love what he owns. the, The idea being that that he does love it. And so I would imagine that part of the conversation that happens within the halls of Berkshire Hathaway and between Warren Buffett and, and Todd Combs being kind of his chief investment guy at this point, he was also, we're told, the architect of this big healthcare push uh, that they're doing is, you know, Buffett is a long-term value investor. And, and the hope would be that even if it's run up a little bit now, they can still find things to invest in. The challenge with a private equity firm is they've got to put that money to work, do something with it and get it back. They really the, the, the clock is really ticking there. So Buffett can afford to be a little bit more sanguine about this. There's there's more pressure on the PE guys for sure. Yeah, I think one thing that's really and this is sort of joins the two subjects quite nicely is Buffett has not done a really big deal without the Brazilian private equity firm 3G for a number of years. I mean, he did precision cast parts, which was a big deal, but that was a few years back. Uh, the the last big thing he tried really was Unilever. Uh, and that obviously would have been with the Brazilians under the Kraft Heinz banner. That would have been huge, one of the biggest transactions of all time. And it sort of fell apart because, well, partly because it leaked, but also partly apparently because Kraft Heinz 3G Buffett misjudged the political slash corporate reaction from from Unilever about such a deal. So it will be interesting. I mean, look, 3G obviously are under pressure themselves to do another big deal. They need to to grow. Kraft Heinz had terrible results this year in in part because they haven't gone out and acquired anything. And Buffett's off the board. And Buffett is off the board. That was another big headline. Yes, that was was indeed another big takeaway. Although he does say somewhere in the letter that he still buys McDonald's fries, obviously slathered in Heinz ketchup. So he's still... (laughs) I love that you always see pictures of him, too, with that Coca-Cola sitting in front of him, too. Yeah, or a Dairy Queen. Yeah. Or or some such thing. He's a man of predictable taste. So, Melissa, we are going to let you get back to enjoying life in Berlin. Nightlife in Berlin, yeah. Yeah. Have like curry versed or something like that. Will do. And thanks for bringing me in. I appreciate it. So, 
Jason, we are now going to turn to a really alive deal situation, which we've talked about on this show before, and you have some previous expertise in, which is Broadcom, Qualcomm. I love the back and oh, forth man. of this deal. These companies just I don't envy you having to, to capture it all, but I love the reporting. I love the drama. I love the back and forth. And it's playing out so fast it's, right it's, now. And it's daily. It really Now it really is daily. And actually, yesterday, I think there were three separate stories uh, just in the space of one day. So yesterday, we started the day with uh, Qualcomm coming out with what looked like the first kind of really conciliatory statement they've made in this whole process. They said... Uh, you know, they would welcome more engagement. They think that there is really only a difference on valuation and actually some of the regulatory risks they had previously talked about they seem to have got comfortable with. Um, Broadcom fired back pretty quickly and said that this was kind of wishy-washy. The statement that Qualcomm had made was just an, an attempt to appear friendly, but actually they weren't really doing anything new here. So they were, Broadcom really just said, look, we're going to push on to March the 6th when they're going to try and turn over the Qualcomm board at this hostile, um, with the hostile process at the shareholder meeting. Qualcomm at the very end of yesterday hit back and said Broadcom were sort of mischaracterizing their position. I mean, it's just these guys. They can't get it this, together. This back and forth is amazing. Plus, I mean, what, what is amazing to me too is that we're watching it play out in even more real time because it used to be you'd have to wait for an interview by one of the CEOs on television or you know leaking to a reporter whatever it was now it's just Twitter I mean it's like politics now in the sense that you've got people right. weighing in and there's no real way to distinguish a lot of times without really digging in like who's a credible voice who's not you know and you've got day-to-day shareholders come in. You've got people talking about, like, their parents owning it. I mean, it's amazing to kind it, of watch all this. It's kind of a mess. And, it, and and actually, from our point of view as reporters, it's quite difficult to, you know, to know what is the main news story of the day because it's at this point, it's so fast-paced. And as you say, social media is is playing a huge role. In fact, Qualcomm, just this morning, just before we came on air, they, they I printed this out because I thought it was so amusing. They tweeted... Smartphone makers know what's at stake with Broadcom's hostile takeover attempt. You should too. And then they have a big picture from the Wall Street Journal where they say mega chip deal alarms some Chinese smartphone makers. Uh, But if they're using Twitter to sort of straw poll what the market or their investors think, then maybe this hasn't quite come off. There is a lot of smack talking about Qualcomm. Is that the technical term? There's some good ones. So uh, Antoine Stark says, the Wall Street Journal isn't Wall Street. You promoting this tweet is as petty as you walking away from a 30% premium buyout. You have grown complacent and arrogant. When March the 6th comes around, our comeuppance arrives with it. Ditch as much as possible of this board power to the people and and so on and so on there's lots of stuff like this people have said their grandparents have owned the stock and it's always been bad um i suppose i should try and find one positive one for qualcomm so let's see uh right at the bottom uh right at the bottom adam demoy says what's at stake is cyber contracts hopefully qualcomm can hold these hostile takeover bids at bay it's what's best for business vince mcmahon wow i'm not sure how vince mcmahon fits into all of this but he does somehow um well, I do think that what will be fascinating, obviously, this is all marching toward March 6th, right? right? I mean, right. this will be one of the, the <laughs> most- The great hostiles of all time. Yeah. And, and the meeting itself, you know, looks like it will be quite the theater. It does. And we should note that the shares in Qualcomm have rallied quite a lot in the past two days, sort of amid all of this stuff. So they're up about 8%. So the market is now handicapping this deal as, as more likely to happen. I also really want to highlight something by our, our great colleague we mentioned often on the show, Ian King, out on the West Coast, tireless reporter. He had a story published at about 3 a.m. 
in the morning yesterday, his time, which was to note this first Broadcom thing. So he did this great piece over the weekend about the sort of fatigue that's built up among some Qualcomm shareholders. So his point is that the $82 a share that was originally offered, which has now fallen to $79 a share for complex reasons of the mechanism that Broadcom put in place to do with what Qualcomm itself was going to pay for NXP, he says that that is not necessarily enough it's not necessarily the perfect number but the qualcomm shareholders but, they yeah. might just sell anyway yeah. because they're kind of done they're with this tired. whole thing they're weary they're weary they're tired they've kind of had enough and actually when i was reading through this twitter feed it kind of it's kind of saying that like at, at least the, the people who are speaking on directionally here, yeah. right this guy brian savage my father's owned qualcomm stock for years decades even and is really tired of qualcomm's constant litigations fine and a board who is like a 1950s grandpa Wow, I mean that sounds pretty fatigued to me. That's if if you're if you're invoking your grandpa, like that that just has fatigue written all over it. Yeah, I di- I can't wait to see how this one plays out. So we will be back next week, um, just in time for the shareholder meeting. Maybe we will be able to update you more then. Until then, stay tuned to Bloomberg.com for the latest on all of these mergers that we're talking about and the latest from Melissa Mitzman in Berlin. That just leaves me to thank Magnus Hendrickson, our producer for the show. See you next week. Mm-hmm.